0: Law, Liberty, Life in Jesus, Knowing How It All Works. This is part six. The title this morning is Belief in the Heart Must Be Lived in Your Outside Life. Belief in the Heart must be lived in your outside life. Galatians 2, we're looking at 11 through 14, okay? Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Follow along as I read. But when Cephas, that's Peter, Greek name, Hebrew. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. James is the uh, leader of the church in Jerusalem, the dominant church. However, when they came, when these people from Jerusalem came, he, Peter, withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. So he was perfectly content to sit down with Gentiles, to break bread, to have meals, to have fellowship. It was all good. Until these guys came from Jerusalem, and then Peter said, oh, no, no, I won't. And he's just with the Jews. Paul can't stand it. 13. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. That's the second time he uses the word hypocrisy. 14. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. I told Cephas in front of everyone. So this is not like, Peter, come over here. I just want to no. in front of everybody. So everybody could hear. That seems mean, doesn't it? But the reason for that is the people are in droves starting to follow Peter's example. He doesn't gain anything just talking to Peter. I told Cephas in front of everyone, 14, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? It it must have been very hard, I think, for Paul to deal with this situation, it says in Antioch. Here's one of the reasons. Peter had, had been involved in welcoming Paul at Jerusalem. Remember, Paul, after uh, 14 years, he goes to Jerusalem. And it was Peter's support in Jerusalem that kind of welcomed Paul, recognized his ministry. Peter kind of led the group in saying, this, this Saul, now Paul, he's a changed man. This is the gospel. Come on. We, we, I know you guys are afraid, but we've got to welcome him in. We've got to bring him in. That was Peter. Can't imagine what that encouragement from Peter must have meant to Paul. And then, and then Paul mentions the presence of Barnabas. Very specifically, he says Barnabas was carried along with the same hypocrisy as Peter. That's what the text says. And Paul has to confront Barnabas along with Peter. Now, in order to catch just how hard this must have been on Paul, remember, it was Barnabas who was perhaps the very first one to express confidence in Paul when no one else believed Paul could have ever come to Christ after his horrible past of persecuting Christians in the church. You can see that. It's in Acts 9, 26-30. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Look, they were all they were all afraid of him. Since they did not believe he was a disciple. Here, Barnabas. Barnabas, however, took him, brought him to the apostles, and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road, and that the Lord had talked to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Paul owed a lot to Barnabas. Nobody believed Paul. Paul may have had no ministry whatsoever in your New Testament had it not been for Barnabas. Like, that's amazing. And Barnabas, Barnabas was a great man. Over and over, we see this ministry. Barnabas, the son of encouragement and love in the New Testament. Remember remember when Paul didn't want to give Mark a second chance at traveling and ministering with him? Took Silas, left Mark. You know what happened? Barnabas. Barnabas goes up to Mark and says, come on, come with me. That's a great thing. That's a great thing. It's in Acts 15. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John, who was called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed off to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. Now, why am I doing this? Keep this in mind. Peter, when Paul comes to Jerusalem after 14 years of isolated ministry, he goes to Jerusalem. Peter's one of the first ones that welcomes Paul, recognizes Barnabas does the same thing. So, this had to be in Paul's mind when these are the two most prominent people deserting the gospel in Antioch. It's, it's, of all people, Paul must have thought, Peter and Barnabas? I have to confront Peter and Barnabas? Here are some lessons we can learn. Point number one. It's possible for some actions to so contradict the truth of the gospel that a loving acceptance of those actions is immoral. Think about that. There are rare times when tolerance becomes wicked. That's what you're seeing here. They're compromising the truth of the gospel. It's not just some personality conflict. They're changing the content of the gospel. Maybe that's the most central and obvious point in this text. Paul couldn't just let pass the conduct of Peter and Barnabas. Even though, as we saw in the introduction... It would have been very understandable for Paul to let them off the hook, I think. There was nothing in Paul that desired such a confrontation, especially with Peter and Barnabas. He owed a a, a great deal to these two men. So, So you have to stop and you say, why? Why would Paul make such a fuss when it was very uncomfortable for him to do it? It's in verse 14. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. I told Cephas in front of everyone. See? In front of everybody. You only need the first part of that verse. When I saw they were not straightforward. Or they were deviating. Christian Standard Bible. They were deviating from the truth of the gospel. That was it. Paul saw the basic uh, integrity, the content of the gospel. It was being compromised. It was being twisted. It's, it's actually, it's the very same use of the word we read in Paul's earlier description about the Judaizers who wanted to have Gentile Titus circumcised. It's in Galatians 2, five. But we did not submit to these people for a moment so that the, gospel would, the truth of the gospel would be preserved. Same reason. The truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, what you see when you compare those two texts is it doesn't matter to Paul where the compromise comes from if it's the gospel. In the first instance, it was the false teachers who came from the outside. In the latter case, it was Peter and Barnabas, right from inside the local church. Doesn't matter where the compromise came from. If the content of the gospel, not a personality conflict, this isn't like the way churches split. Churches don't split over the gospel. Churches split over, they make me stand too long, the music's too loud, I don't like this, I don't... See, that's not what Paul's dealing with. He's dealing with the content of the gospel. Imagine Paul saying that. Peter, Peter, you're you're compelling these newly converted Gentiles, you're compelling them to return to the Old Covenant. Peter's actions were of such power and vividness that Paul says he was responsible for these people turning from the gospel just as surely as if Peter had preached a sermon denying Jesus Christ. But Peter was doing it without saying a word. Now, later on, Peter himself, much older, much more mature, he would write to the church himself he would write to the church about the danger of false teachers who would deny the gospel this is the same this is the same peter there were indeed false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you they will bring in they will bring in destructive heresies destructive of what well destructive of the people that's why allowing false teaching is never compassionate it's never loving it's destructive to people. Even, look, even denying the master who bought them. And will bring swift destruction on themselves. But, but, years earlier, in Antioch, somehow Peter lost sight of the fact that he could deny Jesus without saying anything. Do, do we need to hear that sometimes? I'm pretty clear on the deity of Christ. I've read and studied I don't have to say a word, though, to deny the gospel of Christ. It can be easily done. So I hope you see why Paul responded as strongly as he did. When the gospel goes, lives perish. When the gospel gets changed, lives perish. And... All of us exercise some sphere of influence. Some in churches, some in schools, some in homes. We all influence friends and acquaintances more than we realize. It's a very serious thing to compromise the truth of the gospel in the way we live. The things we watch on Netflix. The way we go to church. Point number two. Here's another, I think, really important point. Past experiences of grace do not, in themselves, guarantee future faithfulness to the truth. I mean, just think for a minute about Barnabas. Wonderful, gracious, encouraging Barnabas. The Bible tells us a little bit more about his character and his walk with the Lord. It's in Acts 11, 22 to 24. Look what it says. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. Now, this is talking about Barnabas. He was, he was a good man. Look at He was full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. I love people to say that about me. Large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man. He didn't do bad things. He shunned sin and wickedness. The text says Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. It's always a wonderful thing to watch someone of whom it can be just so obviously said he was full of the Holy Spirit. We usually like to talk about all Christians being indwelt by the Spirit. True enough, but that's not what this is talking about. Full of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit in ministry. Barnabas, that was Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit. Full of faith, it says. Faith for God to work miracles, faith to persist in sustained prayer, faith to lead others to Christ. Barnabas, the text says, didn't just dabble in this. He was full of these things. He overflowed with these things. So Barnabas stood out from the crowd. And then he and Peter betrayed the gospel in Antioch. What's going on? What's going on? How how are we going to explain this? I mean, look at Peter. He, of all people, knew better than he acted in Antioch. Remember just some of the lengths to which God went to straighten out Peter's thinking on this whole issue of the gospel and the doing away of the old covenant and the inclusion of Gentiles in the church? Let me just refresh your memory. This is Peter. The he is Peter. He saw heaven opened and, and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down being lowered by its four corners to the earth. You don't forget something like that. But he did in Antioch. Verse 12. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. And a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill, eat. Peter knows who's talking to him. No, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. This is Peter's introduction to the radical freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter is about to be sent to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius is a prominent leader, a Gentile. To prepare Peter for that missionary enterprise, God sends this vision in which God lowers a sheet. All the animals that Peter had been raised as a devout Jew to renounce as unclean. And the voice says, Peter... Have a barbecue. Peter, of course, refuses out of loyalty to the commandments in the book of Leviticus chapter 11. That's what you'd expect them to do, I guess. And then in words that must have sent shockwaves through Peter's whole religious system comes. What I've said is clean, Peter. Don't, don't you dare call in clean. There's a change coming, Peter. This vision is what we would refer to as a paradigm shift for Peter, the church, the history of the world. God is telling Peter that a new era, a new era in redemptive history has been launched through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that sacrificial system, and the Old Testament regulations of ceremonial cleanness, separateness from the Gentiles, They've done their job. Their usefulness is over now that Jesus has shed his blood. Peter gets to Cornelius' house, makes clear his understanding of what God was showing him in that vision. It's in 25 to 28 of Acts 10. Peter entered. Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. Oh, man. Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I myself am also a man. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people. And Peter said to them, you know, it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or to visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. So Peter understood. He understood what God was doing. He understood what God was showing him in that vision He did see God's heart to reach the Gentiles. He did see God's plan to reach the whole world with the gospel of Christ. It's wonderful. Wonderful to see the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit leading both Peter and Paul, totally independent of each other, leading them in the same direction. Paul, before his conversion, he couldn't see beyond Judaism. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He persecuted the church out of loyalty to the Old Covenant. Peter couldn't imagine going to the house of Cornelius any more than he would eat unclean food. But here they are, Peter and Paul, led by the Spirit of God to see the truth of the gospel. The second truth that Peter and Paul came to see was that he, Peter, as a Jew, was now free from those same laws about separation and uncleanness through the ceremonial law. Staggering revelations. But in Antioch, in Antioch, they both failed to live in the truth that they knew. All of those past experiences. I took the time to read them because they're not ordinary experiences. These are incredible experiences. Imagine Saul knocked off his donkey lying on the ground hearing the voice of Jesus. Imagine Peter sitting there with his sheet coming down out of heaven. These weren't little things and yet they both deserted what they had seen. Peter... uh, Peter and Barnabas, rather. Both deserted what they'd seen. So, here's the question as we wrap up. What went wrong in Antioch? What went wrong in Antioch? Point number three. Both Peter and Barnabas were led astray by the fear of man, which leads to hypocrisy. Look at Galatians 2, 12 and 13. For he, Peter, regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain, certain men came from James. Heavyweights. However, when they came, he withdrew. He separated himself. Because he feared those from the circumcision party. And then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So the important insight at the end of this teaching comes from seeing the linking of two terms in these verses. Notice how Paul links fear, right there, and hypocrisy, there and there. And notice that the linkage, there's this cause and effect. First comes fear in verse 12, then comes the hypocrisy in 13. Fear first, and that's what made them hypocrites. Peter feared the men who had come from James' church. What would they think about Peter's eating with the Gentiles? After all, Peter was an apostle. He was supposed to show leadership. What if he lost his credentials? So, whatever the internal process, Peter played the wrong thoughts in his mind. He allowed the fear of people to dominate his actions. I'm sure Peter didn't want to live hypocritically to the gospel. I'm sure he loved Jesus and he, and he had the revelation of the truth from God about the gospel and the Gentiles, but, but he took his eyes off the Lord and he put his eyes on those people from Jerusalem and you, you can't Be true to Jesus. Living for the approval of your peers. If you forget everything else I say this morning. If I could get every person under 20. Here's how you you don't ruin your life in your 20s. You care more about what Jesus thinks than any of your friends think. You can't be true to Jesus. If you're going to be dominated by the fear of your peers. Jesus said the same thing. John 5, 44. I left some text out because I'm just trying to brush through this. How can you believe? Since you accept glory that comes from one another. But don't seek the glory that comes from the only god. What I want to do is compare these two words. This one, let me clean that up a wee bit. Just a minute. I want to compare that word with that word because they aren't the same, are they? They aren't the same. Accepting is easy. This is this is the normal way we drift. Accepting approval from people. That that dictates a lot of what we do seeking implies effort if if you're going to keep your eyes on Jesus it's a lot more work than keeping your eyes on people the applause of the crowd you just accept it's a natural process we all live to please each other that's the natural order since the fall if you want to live for god's glory you have to seek that every day there's a price How, how can you believe? If you're, if you're living for your peers, forget it. Don't even pretend to be a Christian. Don't even pretend. Jesus is saying it's impossible. So, if there's a closing wrap-up for us in this text from Galatians, it might be that keeping the faith is more than an intellectual process. It involves more than knowing the truth. Peter and Barnabas both knew the truth vividly. Just knowing facts won't keep you from being a hypocrite unless we just passionately keep our eyes on the Lord. All of life, day in, day out, must be lived with this keen sense of living before God and living for his glory. Where would the New Testament church have ended up? Where would the new, church, the new Testament church have ended up if Paul had been more afraid of being called unloving or intolerant than he feared losing the truth of the gospel? What if he had given in to that fear? What if, I mean, it's, it's just an unbroken chain Right back to the New Testament church. Doesn't matter what link you take out. The chain's broken. What if Paul hadn't confronted Peter and Barnabas about the truth of the gospel? What if he just let it go and everybody just drifted in that direction? What I'm saying is this. If you have kids who know and follow Jesus Christ, the reason they do is Paul was intolerant of Peter and Barnabas's mistake. And it was a loving intolerance because it brought the gospel to everyone in this room. You had something to believe that you could rely on because Paul didn't tolerate deviating from gospel truth. Of course, you got to be careful what you're being intolerant of. There's a lot of things that are just taste. Make room for everybody. But if you're talking about the gospel, I'm concerned the church thinks it's loving to just embrace all sorts of different ideas. And it's, and it's the most wicked thing you can do to future generations. And everybody said, say it louder so they hear you at home. Amen.